The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Some of us have been looking at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, and uh, we're following along through it. Now, sort of in the middle, where the for Ajahn Chah, this great Thai meditation master who died in the early 1990s, is talking about meditation practice. And often, it's talked about as a training of the mind, because of this recognition that if we just let the mind be, well, the tendency, I mean, if we're honest, the tendency of our mind is to do things like worry and be judgmental and hope and dream and fantasize and hate ourselves and react in different kinds of ways. So it's not enough to just follow our heart or at least in the sense of following the way our heart or mind is conditioned, because so much of our conditioning isn't conducive to happiness. You know, it's conducive to being tight. So this is actually an important, I think, first step as a, a spiritual seeker. Is somehow we've recognized, just by paying attention enough in our lives, we've recognized that a lot of the conditioning of the mind, even though it's not personal, but we recognize that a lot of the mind's conditioning, the habit energy, isn't helpful. And we can either dismiss it or feel badly about that, but the most important thing to do is to do something that actually transforms it. You know, and there's two ways to transform our habit energy. One is to suppress it, and sometimes that's quite useful. Like even concentrating on the breath, concentrating on walking, or these different ways of directing our attention, it's a way of, it can be at least a way of suppressing the habit energy, the different patterns of conditioning. You know, something's triggering us out in the environment, whatever it is, some obnoxious person at work, or something you're hearing on the news, and, you know, you could continue to indulge, listen to the news, or you could shut it off. And the reactivity diminishes when the mind isn't indulging, isn't opening to that experience. So in a way, it's suppressing. Like, I, no, I'm not going to feed this. But ultimately, a more powerful way of freeing the mind from its different patterns is to not be confused by them. So we really want to work, do both of these trainings. We're training the mind to avoid experiences when it can, and it can't always do this, but when it can, we're training the mind to avoid experiences that trigger a lot of unwholesome psychological habits. This is just common sense. We're already doing this to some degree, but we can be more conscious, more aware that this is really useful. We don't have to uh, feed the mind with experiences that trigger unwholesome 
tendencies or unwholesome patterns. But if that's all we do all life long, in a way, it's just like we're running from life. Like, oh, I can't do that. I can't be around that person. You know, I can't look in the mirror. I can't. All this stuff triggers stuff. So we do that to create enough balance, enough stability, so that we can develop this other training, which is when the mind is being triggered, practice not clinging. And it's really a, a paradigm shift. So instead of the trigger being a problem, whatever that might be, the obnoxious person at work, seeing herself in the mirror, listening to something on the news that bothers us, instead of that information or that sight or that sensation or that experience being a trigger for a reactive pattern, it can be, in a sense, a trigger for wisdom to arise. Oh, it's just this being known, just this sensation being known, just this visual experience being known, just this interaction, this whatever comes from that interaction, like a yucky feeling, just this yucky feeling being known. It's just this being known. And even though those are just words, the words are pointing to this paradigm shift from, on the one hand, taking the experience very personally. And so because it's personal, we personally, the heart-mind personally reacts, gets tight, gets involved, versus understanding that it's just something being known. It's like even the experience right now we can use, here we are seeing, feeling the body sitting, hearing the sounds of my voice and other sounds. So we're here, and it's so easy for us now to be here and to kind of fall into this, like I'm at common ground, listening to these teachings, which I like or I don't like, I understand, I don't understand, so whatever that is. But we can, we can sort of train the mind to be more simple so that we're sitting here, but there's just hearing being known, sounds being known. And some of those sounds maybe cause meaning to arise, right? Here the mind is actually recognizing the sound as words, you know, that makes sense in some way. So that's just meaning being known or thoughts being known, sensations being known, whatever mood or mind state, qualities of mind that are present, they're just being known. Even if you feel a little self-conscious or a little doubtful, that can also be something being known. So there's absolutely nothing that could be present now for any one of us that can't be transformed into this experience where this is just something being known. And we don't like that. It's like uh, anything that's new, generally there's some inertia. The mind, like any sort of natural thing, it gets dependent on what's familiar, what's being known. And so when there's something new introduced, like a different way of being, a different way of seeing or knowing, there's generally some resistance. I used to work with kids in the public schools way back when, and I was 
for a time a behavior specialist, um, special ed teacher. And, uh, you know, so sometimes children didn't have behaviors that worked so well in schools. And so working with the classroom teachers, we'd see what we could do to help the child change his or her behavior. And often when you're going to, you know, you come up with a plan, even plans that you work out with the children, often there's sort of uh, resistance. So initially, and those of you who are parents have had the same experience, initially it's like things get worse. It's almost like on some level the child, or in our case, our mind, knows that there's a change of foot, and it kind of goes, no way. You know, you can't make me change. You can't make me do this. You can't make me that way. I'll show you. You know, we just have this, it's just another condition pattern in the mind that's sort of rebellious, resistant, uh, not wanting to be trained, not wanting to be pushed around. I'm sure you've noticed sometimes you just sit down. Your mind felt relatively stable and quiet all day long. And then you sit down, and it's like the mind's out of control. You know, wanting to think that, wanting to react to this. And it's surprising. But the key is not just to be persistent. Like, the whole point is getting to the place where it doesn't really matter what the mind or body does. Because the mind is relying on one thing. The wisdom that understands it's just this being known. And so, if the mind's flipping out, freaking out, reacting, that's okay. It's just that being known. And there's some trust that in the long run, taking the long view, that that way of being, teasing out attachment, teasing out identification, is conducive to real freedom. And not only just the sense of inner freedom, but it also allows for a much greater skillfulness in the world. Let me read a little from this chapter. Again, it's uh, Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. Just a collection of talks that this uh, Dharma teacher gave. Greg, would you turn the top two lights on a little higher? That's great. So what Ajahn Chah says is, when you don't let yourself do what you want to do, there is conflict. The conflict here is that between wisdom and the defilements. And it is also known as the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And he's referring to a famous quote that the Buddha gave a long time ago, of course. He said there's two kinds of suffering. The suffering that causes us to suffer more. And he goes on to talk about how that's the beating of your breast and the pulling of the hair and the lamenting and the sorrow and the wailing. So there's suffering that leads to more suffering. So things aren't working out so well in our life and we react in ways that create more suffering. Or there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to the end of, the, end of suffering is exactly the mind's resistance to being trained. So when you take up the practice, let's say you you feel relatively inspired and you decide to start sitting every day for some period of time, that's not going to be easy. You know, because you could be listening to the news or you could be doing this or doing that. 
but you're not. And so when we sit down, there's going to be some suffering, the, the part of the mind, the patterns in the mind, that doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to be sitting there, doesn't want to be aware of the breath moving in the body, doesn't want to feel the body sitting, doesn't want to be present. And to recognize that is unpleasant. That's a kind of suffering. But it's the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. I mentioned recently in one of the talks, for a long time in the early 90s, mid-90s, we had a little quote up on our bulletin board at the old building a little bit east of here. And it said something like, uh, you can spend your whole life, let's see, how did it go? You can spend your whole life suffering, or you can spend your whole life releasing or ending suffering. Both take equal effort. Something like that. And it's really true. It's like It takes a lot of work to just keep suffering in the ways that we're suffering, to keep being stressed in the ways that we're stressed in life. You know, like most of us, probably, honestly, if we're honest, we'd say, well, yeah, I've got stress, or life isn't perfect for me. And yet, if we looked, we'd say, well, yeah, I'm working pretty hard at life. You know, it's not like I'm cruising along. So we can have a life that takes a lot of effort, that involves a lot of suffering that leads to more suffering, or we can have a life that takes this effort that causes suffering, but the suffering or the discomfort leads to the end of suffering, or the end of stress. And this is that strategy of seeing the mind resisting, seeing the mind do whatever it does, but recognize it as just something being known. So this is such a paradigm shift, because w what our inclination is, given the way the mind's conditioned is, when we do experience stress or something not working right in our life, so we want to get involved and fix it, fix it. I mean, some of us are more that way. You know, we're the control types, the controlling types. And we not only want to fix our life, but we want to fix those people around us. But if you're that way or you're the other extreme, I'm not sure what you call the other end of the psychological spectrum, you know, the, the victims of people who are controlling. <laughs> <laughs> the ones everybody wants to control and fix and... But regardless of the kind of person we are, both of our strategies are our own version of trying to fix our life, like avoiding people who are trying to fix my life, avoid, avoiding dealing with the problems in my life. That's your strategy, you know? And other people's strategy is to be the fixer, to be the controller. And if we look, both strategies involve taking it all very personally taking our life personally, taking the thoughts personally, taking the suffering personally, and there are consequences to that point of view. Let me just read a little more from Ajahn Chah here. He says, The nature of our heart is such that whenever it clings and grasps, there is agitation and confusion. First it might wander over there, then it might wander over here. When, it, uh, when we come to observe this agitation, we might think that it's impossible to train the heart, and so we suffer accordingly. We don't understand that this is the way the heart is. 
There will be thoughts and feelings moving about like this, even though we are practicing, trying to attain peace. That's the way it is. So, so you see, the first movement in practice is, in this moment, the heart or the mind is disengaging from being the doer, trying to fix things, or being the doer who's given up trying to fix things. So either one of those doers, you know, the victim or the one who's giving up or resigned, or the doer that's really going to fix it finally once and for all, whatever notion of being a doer that there is in the mind, that's being abandoned. And in a sense, if you want to conceive of like, well, who or what am I, it's the one that knows, you know, the one that understands. Oh, it's like this. But even that, even conceiving of it in that way is a little, can be problematic. Let me read a little bit more here. We don't understand that this is the way the heart is. There will be thoughts and feelings moving about like this, even though we are practicing trying to attain peace. That's the way it is. When, he, when we have contemplated the nature of the heart, the mind, again and again, we will come to understand that this heart is just as it is. It can't be otherwise. We will know that the heart's ways are just as they are, that it's, that's its nature. If we see this clearly, then we can detach from thoughts and feelings. And we don't have to add on anything more by constantly having to tell ourselves that's just the way it is. Right? So even that strategy, which in moments can be quite useful, like to actually say something in your mind, oh, it's just this being known. Even that can become an aversive strategy, a control strategy. You know, like we don't really like what's going on, so what do we do? We say, well, oh, that's how it is now, you idiot. I mean, it's, a, it's almost as if we add on that other part, you know. Don't you get it? That's just how it is now. So we have to remember that it's very easy for the ignorant or the unskillful pattern or view to keep reasserting itself over and over again, even, even under the guise of being doing the practice. You know, like we are being mindful, we think we're being mindful, we think we're being accepting, but there's impatience, or there's judgment, or there's greed, or there's aversion. Like if I'm just patient enough, if I'm just accepting enough, if I'm just not attached enough, all this will get better. But you see, the strategy is not needing things to be other than what they are, not needing things to be better or worse. So we're exploring a kind of freedom that comes from a radical, I mean, you might think of non-attachment as being a disassociation with experience. But see, that's, an, that's the aversive, it's, that's aversion. So it's not a disassociation, it's not a backing away, it's a radical change of relationship with experience. It's just letting things be. And in a sense, when we let things be, we find ourselves right in the middle of everything. It's not like we're on some distant mountain peak looking down on our experience, saying that's how it is. When we really do this practice correctly and understand that's how it is, there's no defense. The heart is completely undefended because the heart, by definition, the practice is dropping any kind of distance or any conception of like protection, 
Ajahn Chah goes on. He says again, if we see this clearly, we can detach from thoughts and feelings. And we don't have to add on anything more by constantly having to tell ourselves that's just the way it is. When the heart truly understands to let go of everything, thinking and feeling will still be there. But that's very, but that very thinking and feeling will be de- deprived of power. This is similar to a child who likes to play and frolic in ways that annoy us. To the extent that we scold or spank them, we should understand that it's natural for a child to act that way. Then we can let go and leave them to play in their own way. So our troubles are over. How are they over? Because we accept the way of children. Our outlook changes and we accept the true nature of things. We let go and our heart becomes more peaceful. We have right understanding. And just think about how many examples, each of us in our own lives, that there have been little and not so little things that have driven us crazy. And it really feels like that irritating sound from our neighbor is attacking us. You know, they're playing that music again. It's past the time they should be playing loud music or whatever, or person parked where they shouldn't park. Or And it really feels like some existential threat some very personal um, violation. But actually, it's the mind's going out and attacking that thing. You know, So we can change, like we can realize that it's the very nature of some people to play loud music. It doesn't mean that we won't call or we won't you know, skillfully engage the situation, but it means that first and foremost, we're going to change our relationship to the sound, in that case, or to the experience. It doesn't have to be an existential threat, whatever it is. Even our own ill health, you know, uh, something bad happens. You feel the flu symptoms coming on, or you, you know, my dad was in the hospital this weekend. He had a who knows, they don't even know what it was, whether it was just a fluctuation in his blood pressure or a, a mini stroke, or, but evidently no damage as much as they can tell. But he was in the hospital for two nights. And, um, you know, it's so easy to, for huge drama to come up. My dad talked about this a little bit when we were visiting yesterday, you know, just that anxiety as he sort of being at home by himself and sort of recognizing some of the symptoms and you know, just watching what his mind did. He took his blood pressure and he noticed it was higher than it You know, he takes it pretty regularly and noticed it was higher. And then, you know, that happened. You know, that caused some more uh, anxiety or more concern. And, and then trying to get a hold of somebody at the, his doctor's office and just that frustration and, you know, the whole thing can build. So we can have a different relationship where maybe we feel lightheaded or dizzy or we feel the flu symptoms coming on or some other insult arises in our life, which is the tendency in life to experience insults of one sort or another. Even the weather you know, today can, can be that for us. But we don't, have to, we don't have to construct the sense or support that construction that this is some kind of personal violation, personal insult 
as if the weather or even the physical symptoms are out to get us. But it's just how it is now. And then our response can really come from that place. It doesn't mean that we're just going to let, we're not going to respond in some way, but we're not uh, interpreting it in this personal way. And so we can practice that way. I mean, one of the reasons we sit, you know, for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour, you know, and we're sitting there, and if we're sitting long enough, very at some point the body's going to start hurting, and it's really a good place to practice. I mean, ideally, we'd all sit beyond the point where the body's perfectly comfortable. So if you're comfortable sitting for 45 minutes, then you should sit for 50 minutes or 60 minutes so that you get some time where your body's not so comfortable. And then you'll just notice, maybe many, many times in one sit, the mind going back and forth in one moment, feeling like these sensations of discomfort are a personal problem. It shouldn't happen. It's not okay. I've got to fix it. And then other moments when there's more wisdom, it's like, well, it's just pain being known. Just these sensations of throbbing or aching or twisting or whatever that are being known. It's like this now. Well, can this be okay? Is it okay that there are intensely unpleasant sensations arising? And then we really see the difference like when the mind is projecting that it's personal onto the painful sensations, it really becomes intolerable very quickly, unbearable. But when the mind isn't projecting this personal feeling or quality onto the experience, it actually is tolerable. We can sit with a lot of mental or physical discomfort when it's not personal. And when it's personal, it's really hard. Like, I could be sitting and just sort of with the swirl of everything, mind and body, and then there could be a little memory of something that I really should have done but didn't do. And it can feel very personal, like a, a personal mistake that I forgot to do this thing. And it's almost intolerable. I mean, now, because I've trained myself, I don't get up and leave and just do that thing. But, you know, especially if nobody's around, it feels so important just to get up and do that one thing. Because it's so, you know, shame is a very seductive feeling. To be ashamed or to be embarrassed that we didn't do something that we should have done ten days ago or you know how that is like somehow a little email has slipped and it gets too far behind you never go back that far <laughs> unless you're really good at your emails and then uh, and then fortunately probably you remember oh yeah I don't think I ever responded to that person and uh, it can and so just that to take that opportunity to feel that Shame to feel everything that the heart-mind feels, sees, and to recognize that it's just stuff being known. And saying that, it doesn't mean that we're not going to respond to the email or that we shouldn't have respond, responded to it a long time ago. It just means in this moment, we're going to take the opportunity to notice that diversity of emotion and other qualities of that experience and to recognize it's just stuff being known. so that we're training the mind to see, so that it can see or experience anything without being confused by it, without immediately having to interpret it in a self-centered, from a self-centered point of view.
me just finish this section. So I was reading this paragraph where he says, This is similar to a child who likes to play and frolic in ways that annoy us. And to the, ex- uh, uh, to the extent that we scold and spank them, we should understand it's natural for a child to act that way. When we can let go and leave them to play in their own way, so our troubles are over. How are they over? Because we accept the ways of children. Our outlook changes and we accept the true nature of things. We let go and our heart becomes more peaceful. We have right understanding. Whenever we, and I'm skipping around, whenever we see the Dhamma the way it is, then there is the right way, the right path. Defilements are just defilements. The heart is just the heart. Whenever we detach and separate so there are just these things as they really are, then they are merely objects to us. When we are on the right path, then we are impeccable. When we are impeccable, there is openness and freedom all the time. The Buddha said, listen to me, practitioners. You must not cling to anything, to any dhammas. Dhammas with a capital D and an S generally refers to things, experiences. You must not cling to any dhammas. What are those dhammas? They are everything. There isn't anything that is not. Love and hate are dhammas. Happiness and suffering are dhammas. Like and dislike are dhammas. All of these things, no matter how insignificant, are dhammas. When we practice, this, when we do this practice, when we understand, then we can let go. And thus we can comply with the Buddhist teachings of not clinging to any dhammas. And this is really the essence of the Buddhist teachings. One time he said that the Tathagata, this is the word he used to refer to himself, the Tathagata has discovered you know, the supreme way, namely liberation through non-clinging. And that's how he summed it up. And so that's what sitting practice is about. Whether we're just attending to the breath in some systematic way or opening to whatever's predominant in our meditation practice or any other of the many skillful means that people use in meditation practice, ultimately it comes down to not clinging. And so this is the training. And there is no practice without training. Like the heart, given the way that it's conditioned, it's not going to move in the direction of non-clinging. There's something about the experience of clinging that leads to more clinging. It, there's like, it has this feedback mechanism, which in Buddhism we call samsara. The fact that we're suffering in life or stressed in life actually lays the ground for the mind, the heart, to relate in a way that leads to more stress. Like, because I'm relating in a way that causes me stress, that experience of stress reinforces the notion that something's wrong. And my approach to the something being wrong is to do things that are stressful, to worry, to plan in a way that's not helpful, to react with aversion, to react with greed. All of these things are stressful. I feel stressed. 
I recognize I'm stressed. I want to do something about it. But everything at my disposal, given my habit energy, causes more stress. But I don't realize it, so I engage those habits. I get averse. I get greedy. I react in different ways, resist in different ways. And I create more stress, which just triggers more of the same strategies that cause stress. So this is why it's not enough to just trust or just let things be. Because we're going to keep acting in ways that cause stress, triggering patterns that cause that stress. So we need two things. We need this information. Somehow we need to kind of come up or meet up with these teachings that give us a sense of another way, which you want to, you could call mindfulness or the path of non-attachment, non-clinging. And then we have to train. We actually have to be so inspired by getting this information, like, oh, that makes a lot of sense, given my experience, that non-attachment ultimately has to be the way, because I've really seen that attachment is not the way in my life, personally, directly in my experience. So we get inspired, and then maybe we create a systematic way. We put aside time every day, or we go on a retreat, or we just get really inspired to practice in our daily lives. But we literally have to train the mind. We have to rewire the mind in the direction of non-attachment, non-clinging. And as I mentioned earlier, as we begin this training, we'll find a lot of resistance. Because all of the habit of wanting to like use aversion to make life work for us, or use greed to make life work, I mean, you know, when we see something we're really, we really like or attracted to, notice, like tomorrow or whenever you have that experience, notice how much the mind trusts the experience of greed. Being, like, as if being greedy for that thing we like or are attracted to is wholesome. And the same thing, the next time, like even now, you might be experiencing some pain in your body or worry about what's going to happen on Monday. And notice how we trust fear, we trust aversion, like as if that's appropriate, it's actually healthy and uh, makes something good happen. So when we uh, commit to practicing non-attachment, non-clinging, it means that we're not sort of taking up the persona of the angry person, the fearful person, the person who wants this. We're not believing that story. But instead, we're recognizing, oh, that's just wanting. That's just aversion. That's just, you know, worry. So we're seeing those patterns. We can't stop them from happening because they've got momentum. But instead of in a sense, riding that horse and being the angry person, being the person who's worried or being the person who really wants this to happen, we're the one that recognizes it. It's so interesting. Wynn and I, my wife and I, are um, planning some renovations in our house and in the yard around the house. And, you know, it's just so interesting to watch my mind where in moments, you know, seeing that tendency to where somehow there's this feeling like, boy, it will be so nice. I really want this to all be done because it will be so nice for me if this, when this is all done. And setting in motion, the sense is kind of leaning forward, like, it's not so nice now, but when it all gets done, it will be nice. You know, and that's a stressful place to be. 
we don't necessarily notice the stress because the excitement masquerades or hides the stress. We're excited about that. But in order to like that idea of it all being done and just the way we want it, we have to not like the way it is. This is not satisfactory. This is not okay. So we're living in that tension. So seeing that arise in the mind, and then seeing this other possibility where, you know, whatever I'm imagining or we're imagining that we're going to do, you know, and having preferences, but holding it all very lightly and not allowing their, the mind to sort of create a somebody who's going to be saved because of this renovation. It will just be what it is. I mean, my living situation now is so much nicer than it was five years ago. I mean, it's like night and day because uh, we used to live in the same building that the center was in. And we had a really small apartment and it wasn't very private. And that's how it was for 15 years or so. And uh, it was really difficult. Just, I mean, it was nice in some ways, but it was also really difficult. So when Common Ground moved into this building and when and I had all this space finally, I mean, it was just, just so nice. But it's interesting how, like, instead of just appreciating how nice it is, you know, there's this tendency to sort of not like this or want this to happen. So the part of not clinging, non-attachment, is the experience of contentedness, like allowing the moment to be the way it is, not needing things to be other than the way that they are. It's been interesting talking to Debbie, one of our longtime staff people who has had her cancer return now, and it's not a good prognosis for her. Some of you know Debbie Norgard. She's been around for almost ever uh, here in the community. And, you know, she, she's been practicing, of course, for a long time. And just to hear her talk about moments in her life now, and she's got a, besides just dealing with the, you know, the, story of having cancer return and the statistics that that implies and but just all the discomfort of going through chemo again and then having lymphedema and the swelling in her arm and nerve pain and water collecting in her lungs and just all kinds of really noxious physical experiences and then talking about how in moments if she's honest, and not even wanted to be honest, but if she's really honest, it's really okay. It doesn't mean that at times, you know, she, she doesn't really hate what's going on. But to be honest, when she's honest, to acknowledge that, yeah, but in some moments it's really okay. And see, that doesn't fit the narrative. You know, it's like the, the story we want to have is, no, it's not okay to have cancer, and being healthy is okay. But sometimes when we're healthy, it's not okay, you know. And sometimes when things are terrible, it is okay. I mean, terrible in either a physical sense or emotional sense. But we have to understand that contentedness is never far away. We don't, we don't have to, like, the final, if I can't be content now because I have cancer, or I can't be happy now because this person has left me. But in in this practice, we just acknowledge how it is. And when there's happiness, we acknowledge there's happiness. We don't debate whether we should be happy or not. There's just a recognition, oh, there's happiness. It's like this. And when there's unhappiness, 
we don't debate, we don't judge ourselves, well, I shouldn't be happy because I'm so much more wealthy than most of the people on this planet. But if there's unhappiness, there's just that very clear recognition, oh, it's just unhappiness, and it's like this. So we're really dropping our going beyond the need to second-guess experience. There's so much freedom and not needing experience to be other than what it is. And this is really the freedom of non-clinging that we uh, move in the direction of Ajahn Tanisaro, this well-known uh, translator and Buddhist monk and wonderful teacher. He's an American Buddhist monk and abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego, Wat Metta. He's just done, written many, many books. You can All his books are available online for free um, at accessforinsight.org if you want to track down some of those translations or writings. But he talked about one of his teachers, and his teacher's teaching at this Thai master, I think it was Ajahn Lee, this Thai master that uh, he's in the studies in the lineage of, had this line about, mounds are only heavy if you try to lift them. And this is a nice, uh, really powerful image. It's like, if there's a mountain and we don't want it to be there, we've got a big problem, <laughs> literally. <laughs> but if we don't need the mountain to be other than what it is, the mountain isn't a problem at all. And just to kind of go back and forth, like not liking the placement of that mountain, big problem. Not having a problem with the location of the mountain, it's totally fine. In fact, it might be kind of nice having the mountain the way that it is. Having a life is the same way. It's like a mountain, you know. Not liking the life, not liking the moment that's arising for us right now or in any moment, then we have a big problem because this moment, this life circumstance, the conditions, it's already this way. You know, the body's already this way. The particular health or lack of health is already this way. My mental functioning, however clear or unclear, sharp or unsharp it is, is already this way. You know, whether I live in a safe place or an unsafe Regardless of whether there's something we can do, right now it is this way. So not wanting the moment to be the way that it is, we've got a big problem. Because it's a mountain, there's no way we can move it. So in this moment, the only thing that makes sense is non-clinging, non-attachment. And it actually frees us up for a more creative response, creative relationship with the present moment. That when the mind is always in this place of wanting things to be other than they are through greed and aversion, we always have a big problem. So the sitting practice and the daily life practice is this training in non-clinging. Whenever you hear about a skillful means, a technique, a meditation technique, or just a daily life practice, whether it's from a Buddhist teacher or just some other person, it's only ultimately useful if it somehow has to do with non-attachment, non-clinging. This is what the Buddha would say. At the end of his life, He's, there he is dying. His, some of his students are gathered around him. And this person who's never studied with the Buddha approaches and is kind of really wanting to meet the Buddha before he dies. Had heard the Buddha was going to die. Had heard he's sort of the best teacher around and 
really asking to see the teacher. And I think it was Ananda saying, no, no, you know, this is not the time to get teachings. And the Buddha, who's just a little bit away under a tree, says, no, no, this person won't take much time. Let him, let him come forward. And the person sort of says, uh, you know, I've heard these teachings from these people and these other teachings from these other people, and it's confusing. How do I know what teachings I should be following? And basically the Buddha says something like, you know, if these teachings have to do, I think he talks about it in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which is just a, a slightly more elaborate way of talking about non-clinging or non-attachment. You know, if the practice is about recognizing suffering and its cause, which is attachment, and freedom from suffering, which is non-attachment, if whatever you hear has to do with that, then it's the right teaching. If whatever you hear has nothing to do with that, then it's not a skillful teaching. You don't need to worry about it. And it's not, it's not like the Buddha was saying, you know, my way or the highway. He's just saying that his way isn't his way. It's, it really is the way that comes from understanding the mind and understanding the experience of suffering. Suffering, when you observe carefully, arises because of clinging, because of attachment. And any experience of happiness, any of the deeper, more resilient and um, resonant states of happiness come from the letting go of, of attachment, the letting go of clinging. And again, this isn't something to believe because it doesn't do any good to believe it, but if we then directly observe this in our minds, it's very useful to see this directly, that attachment is always suffering. So when you're suffering in life, the appropriate question to ask is, is there some attachment? Is this heart or mind attached in some way? And when you're feeling really great, really buoyant, loving, alive in life, you should recognize, you should check, oh look, there is absolutely no attachment present in the mind right now. I get it. I get that this experience of buoyancy and aliveness and love is available whenever the heart drops attachment and clinging. It's, I don't have to be perfect in order to be happy and free. I don't need to be, you know, whatever. I just need to abandon, let go of attachment. So I'll leave it here so there's time for questions or comments, experiences from your own practice you'd like to share with the group that seem relevant. What comes to mind? Yeah, say your name, please. Oh, my name is Sam, and I've come here for a while and listened to your talks, and usually I have questions and just kind of um, keep them to myself. But I, I guess in my head I see kind of a contradiction because when I do feel really happy, because I'm attached to my community. And not like I'm attached, like, ooh, I need to see them, but it's like I genuinely care about the well-being of others and my friends. And, you know, to be, to have good friends, you need to be a good friend. And so, like, I don't know, I find when I'm not feeling happy, it's because I feel detached to people or I'm not... I mean, clinging and attached, maybe you could explain that more, because the way I see it is like community really makes a big difference in a person's life. Yeah.
or love, you know, and all the different varieties of love and compassion and connection. Yeah, and, and that's, that's what we have to tease out. That's why it's really important to go from the words to directly looking at our experience. So, like, when you're experiencing that, that kind of good feeling that comes from what you call community, you know, then what I would look at is, like, first check, is it really a good feeling? You know, and you go, yeah, yeah, this, this is a good feeling. This is wholesome. I don't really have any doubts about that. And then you look at that feeling of connection you have to the community, to your friends, to your family. You're really looking at it, and you're, you're seeing, like, is this attachment? Because there's a difference between love and attachment. Like, one way to describe it, and again, these are just words or images, but, you know, love is something, it's like an inner generosity. It's like a, a flow from the inside out. You know, you want to care, you want to respond to, you wish well for. But when we're attached, it's like, uh, I need you to like me. I need you to be there for me. And it's not that that's not true, but that sort of sense of there's a something in here that needs to be protected. There's something in here that uh, we have to address. Because it's that notion that there's a somebody that needs something to be happy that keeps us on this endless loop, you know, of like trying to get something from others, from our community, for example, that they can't actually give us. But the way that we really build beautiful community is we all take care of each other. There's this great book, called, oh, I think written by Dorothy Bryant, is her name, The Kin of Atta. I think she changed the title of it when it was republished. But anyway, in this story, it's sort of a fantasy book. In this story, she kind of, this utopian culture, uh, nobody feeds themselves. It's just like not in the culture. You don't feed yourself. Everyone, you know, you're having dinner, you know, there's a big group of people, and everybody's feeding other people. You don't put food in your own mouth. And I thought that was such a nice image, you know. And to think about that in terms of community, like what makes good community is not so much going to the community to get your needs met, but invo getting involved in community to meet everybody's needs. So it's not so much that you don't care about your needs, but your needs are sort of held like everybody else's needs. So that's maybe how the non-attachment or non-clinging expresses itself in terms of love and community. It's just that, that there isn't a sort of special focus on your needs, which would be the attachment, but an equal, like that generosity going everywhere equally and everybody doing that. And then that's such a good feeling to be in the middle of everybody taking care of everybody. You know, and it's a real enlivening feeling. So I don't think we're talking about different things. It's just the words are problematic, you know. And, and I think it's appropriate, you know, there's a shadow to non-attachment, which maybe the word detachment is useful for. Because something can seem like non-attachment, but really be a kind of aversion. Like we're afraid of the messiness of relationships, the messiness of life. We just want out. And this is a huge shadow, not just in Buddhist practice, but I think generally in spiritual circles, that uh, using spiritual practice to kind of get out of life, because life is a mess. It's problematic. And, and so we get really idealistic. And a lot of the spiritual systems that are more transcendent-based, like 
getting to heaven, for example, it really has this sense of, of uh, life is bad and I need to get someplace good. And uh, Buddhist practice, when it's understood correctly, it, we really understand that it's really about moving into life. It's really about engagement with people, with the moment, with things as they are. Because the freedom comes from connection, not from disconnection. Disconnection is always going to be coming from aversion. Like, you know, my responsibilities, the world, it's all in the way of my happiness. So I need to go hide in a cave or I need to, you know, go do my meditation practice. So when we're doing meditation practice, it isn't so much disconnecting from the world, it's we're learning how to be fully present in a relatively simple environment so we can learn how to be present in a more complicated environment, like when we are in our community or we are engaging, you know, the world or getting involved. Thanks so much for bringing that up. That was an important point. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah. Say your name, please. April. April. Yeah, I'm just curious about um, how you would view psychology coming into this. Because um, I feel like that has been a tool, you know, because it's often um, some of those, like, um, well, it's just been a tool to, like, look at some of those places that do have pain, you know, and that that needs to be mirrored over and over again so that there could be those other aspects. Compassion and love, and um, more of my essential truth. Wait, more of your There's absolutely right. The, and they're not, they're not really different. I mean, the Buddha talks about that, too. And Western psychology, you know, has done a lot of good work in helping us understand how the stories we tell ourselves really matter and how we can, through reflecting deeply um, on our experience and, and revisiting pain, and we can find ways of... Um, understanding what we're feeling that actually help us get closer because a lot of the stories we tell ourselves you know help us be disconnected from the pain that we're experiencing like we're afraid of it and so if we can tell ourselves a story that allows us to get closer you see how it really becomes essential to the practice because the practice involves opening to everything not having any shut windows or doors in the mind, heart, or body, just being open to everything. And that's also true like in life, not, not just internally you know, when we're sitting alone, but also as we move about the world too, not being afraid of all of the messiness that there is in the world, you know, all the injustice and, and all the fears that we have about differences and uh, feelings, all the different ways we feel separate. So we need, all of that needs to be addressed because we're interested in a freedom that, uh, that, that is uh, unshakable. 
So the only way to realize a freedom that's unshakable is to have everything open. So and then and then to observe whether we get shook up still. And then if we do, we realize well that's there's still some learning. Thanks for bringing that up. So it's 8:30. Let's take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a deep, easy breath together, maybe. Each of us, in our own way, inspired to reflect and to experiment with these teachings to see how this teaching on non-attachment, non-clinging can set emotion, real wisdom and compassion, beautiful engagement in our lives, and be a cause for peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.